the balls are shown. The balls are shown. The balls are shown. Hello and welcome to the Ball Sessions, a podcast where we delve into the lives and the stories of successful millennials. My name is Ross Jeffries, and I'm joined by my co-host Tom West. Good uh, evening, Ross. Unfortunately, Henry is uh, is deep into again. books. Um, but anyway, for session 17, we are joined by Nicholas bowman Scargill, Managing Director of Fears Watches. Hello, Hello there. Hello there. Good evening. Thank you for having us in this wonderful little pop-up store. Oh, plug it. Plug yeah. away. Okay, so for, you know, very, very young millennials, just search for hashtag six-week store. <laughs> for anyone else, go to the Fears website and you'll find out about the store. We're in the Piccadilly Arcade, which is just opposite Bond Street. In central London, we're here until the 3rd of November, and though the name is a store, it's more about come in, have a tea, coffee, or beer, have a look at the watches, explore the museum, discover more about the company. Could you please give our listeners an overview of yourself and fears? Yes, good starter. Okay, well, I think, yeah, you're talking about successful millennials, I think I just scraping as a millennial i'm 31 it's about 35 and if if it suits us we we push that but no right you okay are, you are you're comfortably enough in that bracket <laughs> wonderful okay so yes i uh yeah i run britain's oldest watch company fears watches and i'm the fourth managing director the previous three managing directors were all related to me so it's a family-run business mm-hmm. that i restarted two years ago but it was originally started 172 years ago. So it's a weird thing. I'm one of Britain's oldest watch companies. <laughs> I'm also one of Britain's youngest watch companies. Yeah. That's actually mental. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know where, where we should even start. Probably the beginning. So it was based in Bristol, wasn't it? That's yes. Where, yeah. So your great, great, great grandfather. Well done. Three greats and then the grandfather. Yeah, I, was, I was trying to rem- make sure I remember that. I was like, is it four? No, it's three. Um, but so he created... Fears because he was Edwin Fear. Correct. And that's yes. where Fears was born. And he started Edwin Fear, the watch and clock manufacturers, on Redcliffe Street mm-hmm. in Bristol at the young age of 22 years old. Wow. That is young. I didn't realize he was that young. Yeah. Like, yeah. And we, we actually found in Bristol City Archives a document that basically was signed by his dad acting as guarantor on the lease of the premises on Redcliffe Street. <laughs> That's so good. I, know. I immediately showed it, took a snap on my phone and sent it to my parents and said, well, I think, you know, maybe you should be acting as my guarantor. No, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Not quite so much luck. Um, but then it got passed down to what would have then been your great-great-grandfather. Yep, that's correct. In 1877, he took over when he was 21. So Edwin Fear died a few years before then in 1873. Mm-hmm. And so the business then was held and run by a family trust. Yeah. And they basically were waiting for my great-great-grandfather, Amos Daniel Fear, to come of age. And once he turned 21, he was then able to take over the business. And so a 21-year-old running... A, and at that point, it was a successful business, yes. wasn't it? Yes, yeah. They're, and they employed many people. There's a photograph. Everyone went had a day off work and they went to Western Supermare in celebration. <laughs> and it's this wonderful photo of all these men in their top hats and, you know, all going off to the seaside to celebrate. And then he ran the business till 1931 when he died wow. and his son, my great-grandfather, took over the business and he ran it through till the beginning of the 70s. 
So then what happens? Well, it, it's this wonderful story that is played out so often in British business history uh-huh. that today, if you had a family-run business and you no longer wanted to run it or no one in the family wanted to run it, you would just simply sell it or yeah, yeah. you would take it public or you'd do all kinds of things. Back then, there was very much a feeling that unless you were a member of the family, you'd close it. Mm-hmm. And so for all, all kinds of different reasons, it ended up not being that it was going to go on to the fourth generation. So the business was slowly wound up. And that's, that's a good clock pun, that is. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> yeah, that's the first one. Oh, I reckon that's the first one. Yeah. I'm sure Should we all take last. a swig of beer? Yeah, I think I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'd be amazed how many clock and watch puns there are. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Um, but anyway, actually that sort of strikes um a resonance with me there's number two um um because i work in a family business so it oh, is right so okay, i work for yeah. my father he's had his own business in financial services for the best part of 30 years i didn't go to university and joined him instead so i do mortgage and uh insurance advice if anyone needs it yep that's a bit of a shameless plug <laughs> um um but it is it, it does mean an awful lot more. And another one of the interviews that we did was with Kane, who has his own... He runs a business with his three brothers. And he says it, it, everything, every decision means an awful lot more mm. than it would if you're just an employee. And you. And even here, it's a, small businesses still get it. Because as soon yeah. as you end up joining like a large business, you're a very small cog in a very large machine and you almost aren't changing... The, the way and the direction that a business will go. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do think when it's then a family business, there's, there's more on the line, but it also makes success that much sweeter. Well, it's, it's loads of simple things. Like when I'm back in my office and showroom in Canterbury, on the wall, I have portraits of the three previous managing directors. That's why I identify myself as the fourth managing director. My husband refused to let me put up a portrait of myself. <laughs> he said that was too much. But having those three gents looking down on me when you're there at eight in the morning doing the first morning Instagram post does make you kind of make sure that what you're doing isn't going to do anything to damage the company. You know, I'm a strong believer that actually fears will be, will outlive me. You know, that's what I'm working towards. My business, exactly. You know, my business plan has the, you know, the, the obvious five-year plan. Mm-hmm. I also have a 25-year plan and then a long-term where I want to be in 50 years on a deck on a Sunseeker, obviously, you know, <laughs> cruising around the med. But one of the first questions, actually, I got asked when I restarted Fears. Someone said, oh, you're this young entrepreneur, which was very charming of them, young entrepreneur in London, um, you know, what's your exit strategy? And I said, well, I don't have an exit plan. You know, I'm not planning to leave the business. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, look, the second and third managing director of Fears both celebrated 50 years running the business. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I was 29. So I said, fine, look, ask me at 79 and I'll tell you what my exit strategy is. And yeah. they, they laughed. And I said, well, actually, it's a point of saying everything today is focused around you. Set up a business. Who's going to buy you out? How quickly are you going to grow it? Okay, I'm not a, I'm not a huge Luddite. But I do think that sometimes you need to stop and go, let's take some of this new technology. Let's take some of these new business working practices. But actually not all of it is necessarily going to be relevant. You know, when I send off a watch that someone has purchased online, 
I still do a handwritten letter with mm-hmm. each one with my fountain pen. Because, yeah, you're going to send an email with a tracking reference, but actually that connection is more important. You know, people discover fears on Instagram, but they go on the website, they then request a printed brochure. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful old-fashioned lithiograph brochure. Print it. Exactly. Go on right here. Yeah. And they're printed in the traditional manner, and I send several of those out a week for free all around the world. And, you know, if you post one of those to Australia, it's about six pounds. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when someone receives a printed brochure with a handwritten compliment slip, to bin it, to get rid of it, you have to f- put it in the recycling. Yeah, you have yeah. to think about it. Whereas if I sent you a PDF, oh, it's in your download folder somewhere. Yeah. Like, it's forgotten about. Yeah, you yeah. read half it and you never go back to it. And also, before going to bed, reading a paper brochure, it's better for your eyes. So it's that sort of mixing old and new. For me, that's really important about running a historical business with great heritage but having restarted it in 2018 and not having restarted it being in my 50s or 60s you know mm. I come at everything from a well there must be a new better way of doing this and if there isn't then we'll keep going with a traditional one because you have the legacy behind you but obviously you have effectively started a new business exactly as far as people are concerned exactly so 10 it, years ago they couldn't buy a Fizz watch could they? no no and it's that thing of it's respecting the legacy yeah, yeah. but it's also saying you know I'm restarting you know I'm starting a new business so actually you know all my accountancy stuff is done in the cloud you know I use a cloud based accountancy software you know you, you don't use necessarily all the old fashioned traditional methods of things you go well actually I can do that myself you know there are so many ways of running a business which are cheaper quicker and more efficient today and it's embracing all of those new things while also Not having the heritage. that human Exactly. Touch. Yeah, because financial services, especially at the moment, there are no youngsters in, in that world. Mm-hmm. And so all these people are getting to 65, 70, and just going, it doesn't matter, just sell out to one of the, like the, big, um, like the big corporates that are just swallowing up firms that have, have been open for years and actually been looking after their clients. But then it's getting to a point where the managing director sort of pushes more for their own reward of selling out than worrying about right, their Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's happening an awful lot and the numbers are diminishing, which obviously suits our firm because I'm there as a succession plan. But I do completely get what you mean of also not losing that human touch and actually caring about people that you're serving. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we're sat here halfway through this pop-up store, oh, yeah, the six-week store. the beginning. Oh, we need to plug it. It's here for yeah, three yeah. more weeks until the 3rd of November. Yeah, yeah. But what I found is so many people who have been following fears on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they're subscribed to the newsletter. And actually, this, the humble email newsletter is probably the most valuable marketing tool out there mm-hmm. because people actually open it, they read mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky to have, you know, have you know, kept nearly all my people after GDPR. <laughs> <laughs> that was that that was a fun month, you know. Um but the the thing is having a physical space where someone can come in and either have a beer or have a cup of tea and they can ask questions and it's that thing we all know it's so much quicker just to have a phone call with someone mm-hmm. than send emails. I mean I'm dyslexic, so anything that avoids having to type, I'm all over it. Mm-hmm. And someone comes in here. I, I could talk to them for three hours straight mm. about watches, answering all their questions. They start emailing me. 
it goes down my to-do list. I start putting off the responses. So I think it's, it's too easy to go like, oh, everything has to be, has to be the, the modern digital way. We're yeah. in the age of Amazon, where exactly. it's much easier and cheaper a lot of the time to just three clicks and you've bought something off Amazon. Yeah. But one, that can only go so long and the bubble will burst at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, it already is. But it, it's going to be one of those things where things like buying a watch, it's where you've got emotion. Um, and it is almost more of an emotional purchase and a relationship. You're much more likely to enjoy a watch that you've come into the shop, talk to you about, than just buying online just because well, it tells the time. If we put it this way, absolutely no one in this room, this postcode, this city needs to own a watch, right? Yeah. You know, I make a product that no one actually needs yeah. because the time is everywhere. You know, the time is on your phone, the time is on display on the underground, on, even on the bus. Do you remember a few... Oh, actually, no, you might not remember that. Okay, so until a few years ago... <laughs> until a few years ago, uh, London buses would just say the next destination or then when someone would ding the bell, it'd come up saying, bus stopping. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you, you always have the time as well on that two-line dot matrix screen. Yes. Right, that didn't exist a few years ago. The time wasn't on the bus. And it was quite a big deal in the printed newspapers. They wrote about it yeah. for weeks. That's a, I've never thought about that. That's so interesting. What, well, the, the fact that you actually don't need a watch. Yeah. Like, they are technically a redundant thing now. Because all you have to do is pick up your phone and the time's there. However, I would, I would, I would counter that and say they're not needed, but they're not redundant. What okay. a watch does, which nothing else does, is, for example, you're lying in bed and you think, God, what time is it? Like, you know, I should be going to sleep if you look at your phone, bang, you've got the inst- Instagram notifications, is, emails. Yeah. Also, you're looking at a screen which the wakes line, you up, yeah. right. Whereas you look at a watch dial, actually, it just tells the time. It just doesn't, you know, it, it's giving you one bit of information, but with nothing else. It's separating mm. it out. It's like, um, I don't know if many of your, your friends or, or people you know have Apple Watches. And I'm not, I'm not here to slag off the Apple Watch. No, but do it, slag it off. <laughs> The thing with the Apple Watch is it is fa- a fantastic piece of tooling. But have you sat at dinner with someone who's wearing an Apple Watch after they've just got it? I, I don't know. They, no, but I can imagine yeah, what happens. Yeah. They spend every few minutes looking at their wrist. Now, you know, I may not necessarily be that old at 31, but I'm old enough to think that if someone is sat with you having dinner and they're looking at their watch, it kind of implies yeah. what time is it I need to bugger off. And can I say bugger off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. say okay. whatever you want. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. We have the little E for yeah, explicit. We do, yeah, we do, yeah. We're going to turn this up to 11. <laughs> so you see someone looking at the thing, and, and what are they being notified about? Nothing important. Yeah, you know, when I, when I go to bed, I turn off my phone. My husband and I, we both turn off our phones. There are a handful of people who have our landline number, and it's a, this, is, this is basic. So I own a, a, a house in London that I let out. The tenants have that number as a literally, if it's on fire and it's two in the morning, you call me. Anything else, go and see the neighbour. I don't, you know, tell me in the morning. Or, you know, with my parents, you know, if something happens, call me on that number. But, you know, it's literally a last resort. But it's lovely because it means you just go to bed. You're not interrupted. Yeah. Um, You know, really, I think we forget the really important things. Someone will always get the message to you. True. Um, But going back to the watch, the thing with a watch is... You know, the watch on your wrist, right? You've had that for how many years? Uh, 
two and a half now. Okay, tell me the story of your... your ta- it's a Takoya Carrera, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, having always hated watches, always thought they were annoying and would get in the way too heavy, uh, tried this on because I wanted something sentimental for my 21st birthday. Right. So that was why I wanted something that would last for at least the next year, but obviously wanted really for, to last a long time. So that's why I got it. And it, exactly. and it was because it was a big present for my 21st that meant something. Exactly. Bang. Tom, you're not... I'm not wearing a watch. Tell you what, I really, really like watches. Uh, but I'm... Get the man another drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, if only I had the money. Right. But currently... But, yeah. you know, basically, if you ask anyone, even if they're wearing, say, a £10 watch that they bought in the range, there'll be a story behind it. Usually... At that price point, it's I needed a watch for work because I'm not allowed to have my phone or I want something that I don't mind banging around. There's always more than a sentence behind why someone's wearing a watch. Like, you know, I, I recognize you what I asked you about it. I now know so much about it and I've learned so much more about you mm-hmm. that you are an old romantic, you're a sentimentalist. Yep. Yeah, it's fantastic. Exactly. We're, we're good people. <laughs> But it's interesting because of, you know, it, it also suddenly it's like, oh, you know, you're, you're not wanting to just buy something for a memory. You're wanting to buy something to mark an occasion, yeah. marking mm-hmm. those points. And that's when most people buy a watch. But you're also true. That watch, you'll still have it in 10, 20, 30 years time, mm, at which point then, you know, if, if you have children, potentially it will go on to them. Mm. It's your watch. It's your, your thing. You know, for me, I own a couple of my own watches, uh, but I always make a point I always buy them full price from the business they're my watch yeah 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 so that it's not a watch that I'm just trying on to like impress someone this is my watch this is the watch that you know when you're stumbling out of a bar at three in the morning this is what I'm looking at thinking oh Christ you know but they're the memories that you build with one item you know I've had my iPhone probably for a year too long it's a bit slow now but it'll get replaced. Yeah, and you, you yeah. think, that's the phone that I took my first order on. That's the phone that I got a first contract with a supplier signed on. But still no real actual connection to no, it. No, I don't think of it in that way. Yeah, yeah, Whereas right. the watch on my wrist is where I remember those certain things because it's the one thing that you look at and because it has got that tool aspect. Yeah, I know, I completely that's get true. that because I uh, yeah. actually was so panicked for about two hours once because I thought I'd lost it on a beach and I had just put it on a... With my I mean, it's a nice problem to have, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, mm. you know, I, I'm on a beach and I've just lost my beautiful Swiss-made watch. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh. But, I was still, but it's still, I know what you mean in terms of stories sticking with it. Right. And it is more than just telling the time. Also, going to the work that you do, your, your, yep. your day job, right? So someone's coming to you and they're wanting advice. And, you know, they're, they're, they're sitting down and they need to believe that you are an expert in yes. what you're talking about, right? If you were there, presumably you wear a suit or, yeah. you know, right, okay. Black leather shoes? Yep. Right? Uh, yeah. Okay. I've got new ones, actually. No. Okay. Are those shoes... Do they have Velcro to do no. them up? <laughs> no. How, how do they do up? Laces. Right. Okay. The lace is completely irrelevant these days. We have elastic. We have Velcro. There is no reason... I mean, look at the Balenciagas, which are like socks yeah, in yeah, a shoe, socks, right? Yeah. You don't need laces. That's so true. And yet, <laughs> no one would go into any situation where they want to be garnered with respect without wearing laced-up shoes. Ties, pocket squares, belts. The suit is the most ridiculous piece of clothing. We don't need to wear that. The watch fits into this. It's like cufflinks. Yeah. It's, it's an option for doing a, a, a thing. But it's the sophisticated option. It's yeah, that option yeah. where it goes, 
this person is fought beyond just pure function. And so just as wearing laces, wearing a nice proper watch on your wrist, it doesn't have to be the most expensive in the world, but by wearing a watch and also a black band matches the black shoes, mm-hmm. it's little details like that. Suddenly mm-hmm. it's a subconscious picture where people go, oh, yeah, actually this, this, this guy's put together. You know, he didn't just stumble out of bed and just throw on anything. You know, I'm not going to... Personally, I wouldn't buy insurance from someone in a sweatshirt. Yeah. I probably wouldn't buy, you know, a web domain from someone who in a suit. I'd want that, them to be in a sweatshirt, yeah, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's that thing, right? It's that sophisticated way of doing something that we can do a boring, dull way. Check your phone, you know. Look, look on the corner of the laptop. It's a good. It's a good sell. Uh, I get it. When you said when you said the cufflinks, that's when I was like, yeah, got it. Because yeah. I, I, I hate shirts I hate with button up cuffs. Yeah. I just think it yeah. is shit. For sure. But I know what you mean. Is it's not just the word you say. It's the image that actually gives your message. Exactly. It's about giving a damn about doing something which might take a bit longer. That little bit extra in the morning. Um, don't ask me how long it takes me to get ready in the morning, but. You know, it's like I'm not wearing a belt. I'm wearing braces, which are far more comfortable. But, you know, you have to button them on. You have to put them on. You know, God help you when you go to the toilet, you know. But it's, it's those things which suddenly elevate it from just being, you know, that you don't care. Mm. It shows that you do care and therefore you care in the work you do or what else you do. Yeah, I'm with that. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I am dressed like... Uh, We're both dressed. Like David Brent here. <laughs> you are. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I hate to say it, the way you're dressed, Tom, I remember people wearing that the first time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's true. Look, I usually actually look a lot better than this, don't I, Ross? You do. You, yeah. You've got an eclectic fashion sense. Thanks, mate. I Let's just, move on. I feel like I'm underdressed now. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, oh, sorry. Uh, what I'll, I do want to yeah, do is move yeah. slightly further back. So where you first uh, fell in love with watches okay. and watchmaking. So... I've read somewhere that you were torn between becoming a watchmaker or a train driver. Correct, yes. And you obviously haven't been driving trains any time <laughs> recently. Well, no, I, no. I know of. You may well have done. No, I... Uh, no, it's, been, it's been, a, been a few years since I had my model railway. <laughs> Sadly, a one-bedroom flat doesn't allow that. Um, well, it does. But you'd have to do away with, like, you know, a dining table and mm, everything might, else. Might be worth it, I don't know. It totally is. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, so, you know, when you're a kid, right, mm-hmm. and you want to, and, and, you know, someone says to you, what do you want to be when you're older? When, you, when you're older, what do you want to be? Because we're all defined by our jobs and what we do, obviously, even from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my attempt at sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. no, Pro- I, no I, yeah. it is one of those. So I'll put, st- that- I'll put stars around it and then, and then you know it's sarcasm, <laughs> right? For everyone who's listening, I've put stars around that, right? So. You know, you ask kid and they go, oh, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a train driver, I want to fly a plane, you know. Um, what they don't say is, I want to be a project manager, you know. That, that, that's not what people jump to straight away. So, I was very lucky in 2010, 2011. I was already doing my first job, my first career uh, after university. Of basically being foolish enough to sit down and have a blank sheet of paper, literally a blank sheet of paper and a sharpie and going right pretend I'm seven years old what do I want to do mm-hmm. so to answer your question Ross I probably I'm not going to turn this into a talking LinkedIn profile but we probably need to go back a few stages yep. right so I went to a 
uh, I went to a, a, a fancy school. Um, maybe not as fancy as they think they are, but you know, it's a fancy school in Suffolk. And I did very well at economics and business studies and design technology. Mm-hmm. So I could do the making stuff and I, could, I was fascinated by business. And bear in mind, this was in the early noughties. So like any good, you know, semi-bright public school boy, I was going to the city. Like, that's what you did. There was no question about it. Yeah. Maybe you'd become a medical doctor, but no, no you're, go, you're going into the city. My father's a corporate lawyer. And I'd done, a, you know, some work experience there. But he was like, you, you know, maybe consider other things other than law. And I, I, law didn't fascinate me. But I did love that whole excitement of walking into a beautiful corporate office. And, you know, everything's polished and clean and mm-hmm. it's lovely. So at school, I realized very quickly that I obviously had to become an investment banker. It probably didn't help that, you know, as a teenager at the weekend when my dad had this copy of the FT, I was allowed to read How to Spend It. I honestly think if I'd read Playboy, it would have been, had less damaging effect on me. Um, because, who, you know, who knows where you'd have been now? Well, exactly, you know. Um, but if you start flicking through How to Spend It, of course, you've read How to Spend It. Um, it makes you start having dreams beyond any realistic expectation. Um, Sunseekers are a God-given right. You know, you will one day have the yacht and the holiday home and all that. Anyway, I'd read all this. And then, you know, at this period, investment bankers every year was bonus season and they'd publish articles about how big everyone's bonuses were and all that. And you just get wrapped up in this exciting idea. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember, before the crash, investment bankers were literally masters of the universe. Mm-hmm. That's how they were called, mm-hmm. you know. And so I decided I was going to go to university, do economics which I went and did. I went to York. Um, and while I was there, I did an internship with Deutsche Bank. And I decided that my, my career path was going to be working at Deutsche doing debt. I'm not going to explain anymore because that's kind of as interesting as it gets. <laughs> now, I graduated in July 2008, which was a huge blessing and a curse. A huge curse because, well, I didn't, get to do my job at Deutsche most most of my friends in my, doing my economics degree didn't get to do their jobs either the only ones who kept their jobs were very proud very smug they went to work for Lehman Brothers oh I know that must have been a good time <laughs> short lived victory that is. <laughs> I know yeah. but you know I suddenly am panicking thinking I need to do a new job and I ended up working in public relations for three years and I, I really enjoyed the job. I really enjoyed the work. It was client-based. It was fascinating. I'd get really into what the clients were doing, coming up with campaigns, stories. But as I mentioned before, being dyslexic, I, I knew there was going to be a natural ceiling to my ability to write a press release, to actually you know, convey things in the written form. And that takes us to the holiday, the Christmas 2010, 2011, where I was basically going, right, if I could do anything in the world, I want to do a new job, what would I do? And that's where I decided that actually I want to do something with my hands, something not based in front of a computer or writing. And yeah, I started investigating train driving and watchmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quickly realized that I prefer the working environment of being a watchmaker. I've always loved watches since I was a kid, and I thought, actually, this would be good fun. And I, when talking to my parents, I found out from my mum that my relatives had been watchmakers. But that was all she had said. So I was like, okay, watchmaker must be in the blood. That's, right, let's do this. So I, I wrote a covering letter and a CV 
to all the big watch companies who had a base in the UK, explaining yeah. to them why going from consumer PR to watchmaking was a very natural career progression. <laughs> Tough uh, sell, but... Hey, hey, I worked in PR. Yeah. It, it, was just, it was just another sell. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Rolex... You've heard of Rolex. I, I might, have, once or might, twice, yeah. might have heard of Rolex. Yeah, okay, before. great. Um, so they, after seven months of interviews and practical assessments, eventually agreed with a lot of persuasion to take me on as an apprentice. And I actually worked for five years around the corner from here on St. James's oh, yeah, Square. Yeah, past it, yeah. yeah, it's a beautiful building yeah. um, and a great place to work. I mean, if you're going to learn anything about the industry, you go to the, you go to the king, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing place. But it was while I was there, I kind of had that itch of, I want to do more. And it sounds a bit greedy, but I think it's more a case of, I've never been the sort of person who's just been happy to you know, be told, this is what you're going to do for the next so many decades. Stability is good, but actually graduating in July 2008, so I worked for this PR company. Within a month, a third of the agency staff had been let go. We'd lost loads of big clients, like oh. straight away, because PR is one of those things that a lot of uh, uh, of the clients would basically cut the moment yeah, they yeah, needed yeah. the same money, and so people were panicking because no one, especially when Lehman's went, no one knew where the blood was going to stop, you know. And you suddenly think, my God, I'm 21. I've just moved from university to London. Um, at the time, I'd also, you know, I. I purchased a house because I had a bit of inheritance to, to buy a house had friends from uni living in there renting off me you know suddenly I've got all these commitments I just need to work so hard I need to work my ass off like I need to make sure that I'm totally indispensable to the agency of course 10 years later you know cool reflection you look back and go I was never going to be let go I was the cheapest guy in the room like the guy in the post room, he was earning more than I was. Like by the time they let me go, I'd be turning the lights off as I walked out. So I probably didn't need to have worked as hard as I did, but I think it's a mindset. You just panic. Yeah, yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. And also the same is happening with all my friends. So all my friends, we all graduate at the same point, starting new jobs, new careers, and everyone suddenly felt the pinch. And everyone was like, I'm really worried that I'm going to lose my job. It's very interesting because you look at the people who I graduated with, you know, not many of them have gone on to set up their own businesses, but they are doing disproportionately well for their age in their respective companies they work for. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because they have that, I'm not saying a risk-taking attitude, but they're sort of like, well, what's the worst that can happen? Because they've, to a certain extent, in their work... <coughs> have some more beer. Yeah. Um, no, but despite um, having only quite a young working life, they have been through what should be the worst of, of the economy and the markets. So right. they almost have had that pain point and the worry, and they do know what it is like to actually not have the job stability and not knowing if they're going to be kept on and have mm. a job in a year. Exactly. And you think that's kept with yourselves and your cohort of just a mentality of that's what can happen? Well, I think both. I think... so. Uh the BBC did a very interesting little uh, short film the other day, and it was basically talking about my generation, that, that cohort of people around the world who graduated in 2008. And it's very interesting because people, some, some people are going, oh, it's awful, you know, I still don't do the job that I wanted to do, and you know, this is dreadful, and all, all of that. Um, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, 
some people have been very unlucky um but it's all and then for other people you know they they now crave the stability of a nice home life you know settling down having children for them that's number one that's the most important thing and then you've got the third streak which are people who basically go you know what we can we can achieve whatever we want we you know we saw people who had worked for 30 years loyal for their firm being made redundant yeah. so actually you know what if you want that promotion if you want that position you go for it because what's the worst that can happen now yeah, don't get yeah. me wrong it's calculated risk taking i do it every day in my business i go to i, I you know i say to other friends who run businesses oh, you know, I feel like I'm taking this huge risk. I'm really scared of this, you know. And they go, yeah, but you've written a business plan. Like, you, you, you've written a strategy. You know why you're doing it. But you, you stop being scared of things because actually, what is the absolute worst that can happen? Mm. You're unemployed and you've got to start again. But if you haven't yeah. maximised your time in your job on that day, you'd probably still regret it anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, so it's like, Running a small business, you know, cash flow is obviously, you know, well, we won't go into how important cash flow is. Um, but the thing with that is it means that, you know, some, some weeks, some days, you can feel like king of the world. You know, you have more money than you ever earned in your salary job. And then a few days later, you're like, I literally don't know how I'm going to settle this five-figure invoice. Where has all the money gone? You know, it's, it's always up and down and up and down. But after a while, you just you go with the flow. You just, that's how it is. You just run you, with uh, it. Do you think you live for that thrill, though, a little bit? I had this discussion with somebody a while ago about, <clears throat> especially people, especially entrepreneurs in the kind of first few years of business, uh, secretly they absolutely love it, that they don't know when their next, when their next paycheck might come or when their next meal to pay their rent. <clears throat> it is so it's an interesting thing we've had um, while the store's been open we've, we've had a very good run of sales because people are able to come in try on the watch buy the watch you know or, or straps or accessories mm-hmm. um, and it's that interesting thing where you think back to two years ago when I started you know a sale of anything was just the most exciting thing under the world don't get me wrong I still get excited now the excitement doesn't last to the same extent. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's partly because it's been two years. You know, you get used to something, mm. but well, I'd like to say used to something. It's not that, <laughs> it's, it's not as regular as that. But um, <laughs> but it is, it is, but it's weird how you still want it. You still, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, um, but it's also, you know, look at things in your private life. You know, a few, a few months ago, uh, I bought a classic car. I haven't owned a car in 10 years. But I suddenly was like, you know what? For this one split moment in time, I might be able to take a little bit of money out of the business. I haven't done that in the two and a half years I've been running it. Mm-hmm. You know, buy a car that I can't really afford to run or justify. But if I don't do it now, when will I do it? You yeah, know, sometimes exactly. there are things where you go, I'm going to do this. Let's have a laugh, have a do. Now, the cars end up being quite popular on Instagram. So it's actually probably paid for itself in sort of, you know, getting people following, following fears. But it's a thing where sometimes you... You need to take risks. You need to, you know, but they do need to be calculated risks. Mm. I can, I can see how what you're just saying, Tom. I can see how, you know, in ten years' time, me running fears is going to be a very different me to the one running it today. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there will still be risks, but of course, at that point, it's not talking about invoices in five figures. It's talking about invoices in six figures. Yeah, you exactly. know, and there will be payroll, and there will be, you know, it will be a different kind of beast. Um, one CEO of a watch company, who's a CEO, not a founder, 
It's big, right. yeah. big yeah. distinct yeah. difference. Yeah. And he said, you've got five to 10 years max. And I said, what do you mean? He, and he said this to me like the week before I started Fears. And he said, you have five to 10 years and then you won't be running your company. You'll be chairman, you'll be you know, creative advice, you will be whatever, but you will not be CEO of yeah. your own company. Which is quite a scary thought. Is that how you envisage yeah. it going? Is that how you want it to go? Oh or? no, I'm a total autocrat. Like I'll be running <laughs> everything. <laughs> no, it's it's a weird thing because you you know there are things that I know I can't, I won't be able to do in the future. And you have to delegate. But as a founder, and it is almost your baby. Of course it is. It's entirely my it's baby. So hard for a lot. Of so put it to this way, I you know. I've made a, a, a decision with my, my partner. We're not, we're not going to adopt. We're not going to have children. Mm-hmm. So this is my legacy. Yeah, you yeah. know, my legacy is on people's wrists, all in six continents around the world. You know, it's, that is my thing that I am leaving behind. And I care a lot about it, you know. And I, it, it's that thing where we have a joke in the store because usually I'm working on my own in my office. So people rarely get to see the sort of behind the scenes. And it's really funny. If I get a phone call or a, uh, an email from one of the logistics firms who's sending a watch around the world, you can sense everyone sort of, <gasps> there's an intake of breath. And it's like, a, no, it's okay. The watch has been delivered. Because I, I, I follow and track every morning everything that's going around the world. Because until the person receives it, I care about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, it, I hadn't realized this, but it turns out most companies, once it's left them, they wipe so, their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't see it like that because someone has chosen to spend their hard-earned money with me, yeah. rather than with one of the other million watch companies out there. Well, the least I can do is make sure they actually get it, and it will be, and they're happy with it. You know, following up with people afterwards. These things take more time, but you know what? Actually, when it's a business that's 172 years old, and it, I want it to outlive me. And I'll probably do what, maybe sixty years. Might live till sixty. I don't know. Depends how much Hopefully. I drink. You know. <laughs> um, but no, you know, it, you you want to make sure that everything is done properly rather than just fast. Mm. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's that's the key difference in being a small part in a big company, as opposed to when it is your own beast yeah. that you've been with, well, since day one of, yeah. of this chapter of Fizz. Well, I, I, you know, today we were sending watches out, and I wrapped up a watch. And I wasn't happy with exactly how the paper folded up. It was just slightly off. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. They've spent two and a half thousand pounds on this watch. The least I can do is use another two pence piece of wrapping. (laughs) So I just ripped up the paper, bin the paper, and we started again. Don't worry, it's recycled. It's not, you know, no (laughs) landfill here. But it's a case of going, actually, that is what's important to me. Yeah, It's about this concept of, it's it's in my... um, I, I discovered, actually, thanks to the gentleman who introduced us all to each other, um, about the concept of having a mission statement, you know, vision, values. I'd never heard of these things. Because as much as you want to study business studies, until you run a business, you, there's so many things you don't appreciate and understand. Um, but likewise, there are a lot of things and concepts that I don't even think about. Like, I didn't realize what a strategy document was until I'd written, like, my 10th one. <laughs> You know, and it would have been useful to have actually been taught how to write strategy documents. Start with this, go on to the anyway. One of the you know one of the you know the, the the visions is that I would love that in you know forty fifty years time, the fears is held up as a beacon of good capitalism. Yeah, you know I am a capitalist. I was born in you know the reign of Margaret Thatcher. 
But I do believe in laissez-faire economics. You know, I, I did a degree in economics. I'm, I'm for deregulation. I am for, you know, survival of the fittest. I don't like protectionism. But, and this is the big but, whether it's because, you know, I, I come from uh, quite a religious family. My, my mother is a priest. I, I don't, I'm not a practicing Christian today, but I have you know, been brought up with strong religious values. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's those ethic values when you look around and you see, you know, uh, factories in Bangladesh collapsing. People are still going back to the same shop who make their stuff there yeah, and going yeah. like, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm done with that. For me, it's about actually what you buy. You as a consumer have more say in how the environment's affected and how so people true. around the world are affected. People may blame the big companies. I'm sorry, you, you have the power to do it. But as a company, it's our responsibility to not take the shortcuts. It's our responsibility to actually care, to actually respect the people we're mm -hmm. selling for. You know, there have been countless times where actually I've let a sale go, go down and not take place because someone is umming and erring and, you know, they could be persuaded. But when they start talking about, oh, you know, I could split it on this credit card and this credit card, and I'm there going, I'm sorry, that's not something I want. I don't want my watch on your wrist because, you know, you're, no, I'm not going to force you to do that. I'd yeah. rather lose a few sales, but actually be able to go to bed at night mm. and sleep for eight hours and wake up in the morning with a clean conscience. Now, some capitalists would say, you know, that's a load of bollocks. It's all about growing and it's about profit. Why? Sorry, who wrote that down? Who yeah, wrote yeah. down in stone saying that a capitalist business in the Western world is always about growing profit? Yeah, it's about growth. But it's not about growth at any cost. And it's also, about doing it in the right way, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think that for me is a very important thing. You know, if, and touch wood, this doesn't happen because we've got a lot of work to do tomorrow. But if I walked out of here and got knocked down, you want it that actually you've left a good, clean slate. There isn't, you know, there, there, there aren't those business skeletons that are going to come out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think as well, just from, from the simple fact of, of having a business that can portray those values, like that's a, especially like you're saying with, with a lot of these big corporates who are partaking in questionable activities, it, it's a massive selling point to help grow that to grow the business as well. I think. Well, when, it, when, when it's your name, out. when it's your and your family's name above the door, exactly. You know that this is one of the things that heritage helps with. It's that thing of going, well, look, those three guys. I was about to look up at the wall, but uh, their portraits are currently downstairs um, in our little museum. We have a museum in store. Yeah, Do come in. Come and see everyone. Yeah. So when they're looking down on you, you think, well, look, you three, you ran this business for, what, 130 years? You know, I need to make sure that we're going to outlive the next recession, the next problem, the next mm -hmm. environmental thing that is coming our way. It's, it's a thing of creating something that can survive that. And it's weird because they've been dead for a certain period of time yeah i never knew them but you know i, I never met them but you have never met them but you don't want to let them down at the same time no. yeah yeah it's no. a really bizarre thing because it's almost something that you can't do but that's how you're running the business because that's what you would be proud of and as would they exactly exactly it's it's for me it makes a huge difference to how i make small everyday decisions you know because there are so many things where you can take the shortcuts you can you can do this, you can do that, you can go for the cheaper shipping option. 
when actually you know by spending that extra few pounds it's going to arrive at a time that's convenient for them yeah, yeah. for the owner of the watch not just a customer not a customer number but the owner of something that you've made and i think yeah. that's the thing you know i've always it it sounds a bit like it's um marketing bs but actually i was going to say something worse um but actually you know the way i've always viewed it is people become owners of my watch they don't just buy them you know because you're going to own the watch for years to come exactly yeah yeah i i think that's that's it i think there's so many products where that you you could sell that wouldn't you'd never be able to have that kind of connection which is with. where the amazon thing comes in yeah, it is, yeah exactly. it's purely transactional there you go yeah. buy it and sell it and then that's it relationship over and it's just using the old and the new yeah exactly yeah. it's realizing that you know i i think amazon offers a great service in terms of that is it an experience no it's not no. an experience it's a negative it's, one it's fun- yeah it's functional though isn't it yes but that's, but that, that's and it's all done on volume as opposed to exactly. any type of relationship there's, there's no connection yeah. there between the amazon really and the customer mm. yeah but then you know modern retail is fascinating because you know you walk into so many stores not just watch stores i'm talking about all kinds of stores and actually we the consumer know far more about the product or we can find you know you, you walk into somewhere and you go oh I like this jacket you could ask the sales assistant quite often they'll go oh I'm not sure let me go and find out well by the time they've done that you've brought up your phone you've scanned the barcode you're on the company's website you've got the information so I think it's an important thing that actually if you run a store the person who is the, the front of house the contact has to be better than the website yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You know, my showroom in Canterbury, we don't sell watches from there. I mean, if someone really wants to walk away with a watch, yes, we could. But the idea is that you come and try them on and then order it online and then we'll send it out. Because actually, it's about coming, having the experience, talking about it, asking the questions, but not in an environment where you feel pressured to buy. Yeah, yeah. And that, that must get completely just way more loyal customers in when they then go away and they have to buy it it's you don't want to force anyone to do anything yeah. you know and Touchwood long may this continue but in the last two years you know, we've sold several hundred watches not a single watch has been returned for a refund wow for me that is more important than turnover yeah. profit net profit any of those things mm. that's all vanity that's great actually what I care about is that people love what I make rather than like what I make yeah, yeah. and I think that's the thing of yeah the flip side is that there'll be people who hate what I make. That's fine. That's great. You know, it's it's like when you're you know, <laughs> it may sound a bit bitchy, but you know, it's something my my husband and I always say is if someone if you the best way you can describe someone as in an adjective is saying they're nice. Mm. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, we we all want nice people. No, I want someone who's funny. They're well dressed. <laughs> they're charming. <laughs> they're not charming. They're sassy. They're, I want someone to have, you know, something about that, you know, a bit of spark, anything. And I think it's the same when it comes to things you buy, you know. Yeah, beige is lovely. But, like, actually, I think more companies need to just stop being reliant on that huge volume, low price and go, no, no, let's make a quality product and accept that not everyone is going to like it. Exactly. But I, I, I feel like, as well, those companies end up, coming through like you'll be speaking to someone about about the company and they'll go do you know what uh their their customer service like the way they do things the way they treat their customers is unbelievable so i, I don't know i just love it i think it's such a good selling customer thing. service i think is 
is, if it's not already, it will become the number one differentiator. Yeah. You know, put it this way. You know, I, uh, my broadband supplier back in Canterbury, I would highly recommend them. When was the last time anyone ever said that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's more sort of negative about that kind of thing, isn't it? But their customer service is amazing. You call up, you get straight through to a person, not to a press one for this, press two, you get straight through to a person and they just answer your question. And you go, this is incredible. Yes, it's more expensive, but, you know... They could put their price, they, maybe they have put their price, I don't know, I don't even look at the invoices. You know, yeah, you yeah. just, you pay for it, I'm happy with it. And if there's a problem, they sort it out. Who is this, by the way? Just because spending uh, three years at university trying to cancel a Virgin Media subscription is like the bane of my life. Origin Broadband. They're amazing. They're based up in Yorkshire. That's They're a little independent yeah. broadband company. I use them both for uh, my house and also for my business. Uh-huh. And they are, yeah, they're fantastic. Now, I don't, maybe they're more, a bit more expensive than going to one of the other people. I don't know. But I honestly, I'm really happy to spend a few extra pounds here or there exactly. to just get something that works. You know, yeah, yeah. it's like, how many times have you run for a train? And when you actually look at it, you realize that the advanced ticket you bought was like two pounds cheaper than the flexible ticket, which meant you wouldn't have had to run. <laughs> you could have got the next train. <coughs> Now, don't get me wrong. Yeah, if it's a really cheap advance ticket, yeah, you want to get that. But like, you know, I think too often it's this concept of value, yeah. value for money. It's price versus price and value and cost completely different things. Value is far better and will always be more important yeah. than the cost of something. If, it, if, it, if it's 10 times cheaper and you're getting nothing for that. So put it this way, I'm, I'm, I'm probably still, I probably am too old to be going out clubbing occasionally. Um, but I certainly hope you gentlemen go out clubbing, mm-hmm. right? You put something in the cloakroom. It's one pound, two pound. The value it gives you on your night out by not having to carry your bag. I once, when I first moved to London, I checked in two bags of Tesco shopping. Some friends said, oh, let's go to the pub. We went to the pub. I'd been to Tesco's on the way home from work and we ended up... Anyway, and they were amazing. They put my milk in the fridge. Wow. That's G-A-Y for you. <laughs> <laughs> they care they care uh. but no joking aside it's that thing where so often people be like oh it's one or two pounds I'm not spending that I could buy a horrible shot or a VK or something do people drink VKs oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah people still drink VK okay great yeah, Tom went to Exeter you know, he knows yeah, they, all about they them. love yeah. VK yeah I know I actually hate them but that's, that's, a, that's a different story you're far more discerning than that but the thing is it's a few pounds extra for the greater enjoyment and, you know, not having that. And it seems like a very weird thing talking about, and I hate the word luxury, but, you know, I make beautiful luxury watches. They're Mm -hmm. hand-built in the UK. How are we comparing that to nightclubbing? But it's that thing of going, actually, by paying a little bit extra, you get the better service. You know, it's worth it because of the enjoyment. It's better because of the enjoyment that that then gives you. Exactly, exactly. One thing I do think we haven't talked actually enough about is the watches themselves. So, they so talk us through what came first. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, obviously, the name of that and what that mean, Certainly. means. Certainly. Can you uh, start with how you, like, you've been working at, at Rolex. How have you suddenly found out about this? Because you knew your family yes. watchmakers. How did you find, I don't know, how did this come out? Like, how did you find out the extent of what... Right, okay. Oh, yes, yeah, because I I got so far down that story and then I stopped, didn't I? Yes, okay. So, 
I'd been working at Rolex for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about two and a half years. I was enjoying the job. It was a great job. You know, you get, they have fixed working hours, compulsory one hour lunch break. So you rest your eyes, morning coffee break, afternoon coffee break, because you need to rest your eyes. You know, that's that and your hands. You can't, you can't watch make for seven hours straight. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd probably argue you can't entrepreneur for seven hours straight and still be effective, but you know, somehow Red Bull allows you to. Um, that's my plug. You know, if, yeah. if they want to sponsor me, I'm, I always take the sugar-free variety. Um, and I was enjoying the work. But it was that moment where you realise, I don't want to be doing this for the next 40 years. Yeah. You know, I am a millennial. I do have that itch, that urge to get on, to do more. And I craved that idea that I could do something which was blue sky. Mm-hmm. So put it this way. And I don't know why I'm plugging them so much at the moment. But, you know, if I go home and I, you know, and I finish working on my laptop at one in the morning, you're absolutely shattered. If I then go, right, I want to just do something to relax before going to bed. And you say, go on to the Sunseeker website. And you start looking at stupidly expensive yachts. What I love is that because of what I do, it's a dream, but it is potentially an achievable dream without buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. yeah. What I did before, there would be no hope in hell of ever doing that. That would be a lottery win. I like that freedom of, yes, my business is probably unlikely to ever grow to a size that will allow me to have that yacht. I've already named it in my head. But... <laughs> And it could, you know, go the other way. It could crash and burn and take absolutely everything. My beautiful car, my house, you know, everything. Um, but I enjoy that freedom. That is so... It's like walking to a shop when you've actually saved up a little bit of money and you've got it in the bank and you know that you can afford to buy almost anything you want. You may walk out not having bought anything, but it's that feeling of knowing that it is a possibility. Yeah, yeah. I've wanted that. It probably goes back to when I was a teenager reading How to Spend It. I've wanted that feeling of knowing that I would do that. I'm probably never going to buy a yacht, you know. I actually have, despite how I dress, you know, I love going to the local pub and having my half pints. Mm-hmm. That's another story. I always drink half pints. Two halves. So two you get two types of beer. Of course. Clever. By the end of the evening, you've had four, five, six. It comes from, um, as a kid, uh, up in Yorkshire, we'd spend holidays. My dad would, you know, would drive across the moors, you know, as a family. Because my dad was driving, he would always drink a half pint in each pub. Uh-huh. But it means that even today, you know... After 12 pubs, though. You, you well, <laughs> you start worrying, you start worrying. No, no, no. So we, we'd only do three or four pubs maximum, you know. But no, so, right, right. Going, going, going back to where we were. So there I am at Rolex. I'm, I've always had this dream. I've always wanted this blue sky thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be achievable. I'd like it to one day. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned this to my parents. Now, bear in mind that, you know, I, I wasn't trained to be an investment banker. I certainly am not bright enough to be an investment banker. But, you know, that's what everything had done. And then I'd done a career change and I went into public relations. And then I'd done a complete career change. I, you know, I was an account manager. I was earning a good salary. I was, you know, I had underlings, you know, under my wings. It was wonderful. And then I did a complete career change and became an apprentice. I halved my salary mm-hmm. by doing that. And there I am, suddenly over Sunday lunch, saying to my parents, I'm kind of enjoying my job, but I would maybe one day like to do my own thing. I guess who's going back to (laughs) zero again and starting all over again. And my mum jokingly said, well, why didn't you restart the family watch company? And it was this moment of absolute light bulb moment of going, 
I didn't know about a family watch company. Let's talk a bit more. And it turned out that these relatives who I'd known were watchmakers, and that was part of the inspiration of going to watchmaking. Yeah. I'd assumed they were like that one-man band. You know, the, the, the guy toiling away in a little dark room working on watches. No, it turned out they were also managing directors of, at the time, the West of England's largest watch manufacturer. You know, in the 30s, Fears used to employ 100 watchmakers in Bristol. I saw it was, uh, what was it, shipped to 90-odd countries? 95 countries. 95 countries. 95 countries around the world. I mean, Fears was a big yeah. company. It was a big organization with multiple premises. And you suddenly go, okay, right, this needs investigating. So she found some old adverts, things, no watches, sadly, but she found some old adverts, some old paperwork. And that train journey back into London from my parents, I was like, right this is annoying. This is like one of those earworms. This is in my head. I need to. And that evening I started researching, you know, literally Googling like fears. Okay. Well, nothing comes up. Fears watches, you know, fears Bristol, you know, start Googling. And I, you know, within a few days I'd pinned together maybe half a page of A4 about the history when it was found in. And the annoying thing is I found myself spending more and more time thinking about it and going, actually, this could be really cool. But then at the same time, you know, you want to go out and have nice meals and go on holidays and do all those things that, you know, as a, as someone who is, you know, in their late 20s, middle class is my God given right. You know, I meant to go and do these things. <laughs> but I kept coming back to this idea that wouldn't it be crazy to do this? So you start Googling how to set up a watch company. I did that. It's literally on my Google search. And, of course, it comes up with the odd person who's done it, who's had, like, you know, £900,000 of backing or £2 million of, you know, investment to do it. And you go, right, okay, that doesn't work. But actually, let's look into this. Like, what do you need? Well, you need a watch. You need to design a watch. Uh, Straps, packaging, website, branding, marketing. Okay, there's a lot of things you can do. What if you actually give it a go and try and do them yourself? Because... You can pay a lot of agencies to do this, but it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an expert in all these things, but I can certainly try and be a jack and all trade in all of them. So, you know, that brochure you just held up a moment ago, I designed that myself. That's very impressive, actually. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. I really like it. Sorry. I'm just... And if you buy a watch, you're welcome to take a brochure home for free. <laughs> <laughs> I did, while I was at Rolex, 20 weeks of night courses to learn Adobe Illustrator and Adobe InDesign. Wow. So Illustrator allowed me to take my sketches and turn them into technical drawings, which means that when you go to a manufacturer abroad or in the UK, you're not just giving them a sketch saying, yeah, go on, charge me 30 grand, do your technical drawings. You're going, no, here's a technical drawing. So let's bypass that. I'm not paying for that. I want to pay for the product. Let's work on that. Suddenly, woo, you're startup capital shrinks because you don't need to be paying these people to do something that you can do exactly that brochure i designed that over many many nights actually i spent um, most of that was designed waiting for a friend in a and e i was literally <laughs> sat there on my laptop just tapping away designing it picking pantone colors you know all of this obviously to design a brochure would cost an absolute fortune yeah. and i'm not for a moment wanting you know to put any graphic designers out of work But it's a case of going, look, you know, I am a small business. How do I fund this? And I worked out basically how much money I sort of needed to do it and then start doing some sums or going, well, what if we stop going on holiday? What if we stop eating out? What if we just save everything? And over a few years, it was enough. So 
yeah, it mean it meant that for several years I was at Rolex working nine to five. My lunch break I was in uh, I, I was in a coffee shop working on my business plan. The evenings I was working on plans. Every holiday weekends I was flying abroad, going and meeting with suppliers or meeting anyone who could help me or talk to me or give me any ounce of advice. But it allowed me to start a restart, start a company at the age of twenty nine. Whereas if I'd been paying everyone to do it. I wouldn't have saved the money even today. Yeah, exactly. mm. But by owning 100% of the business, by being self-funded, I get to do the crazy risk. I get to put my personality in everything. You know, I always have a thing that every watch I design, I have to be able to wear. Which, and I have quite small wrists, which means my watches aren't big, chunky and clumpy. Uh-huh. People have said to me, why don't I do like a diving watch? Because diving watches are very popular. Well, I can't swim. <laughs> So I'm damned if I'm going to do a diving watch. That just would be... How inauthentic would that be for me as the managing director of a watch company to make a watch that I couldn't wear or has no purpose for my life? Apart from selling. It's that thing of going, actually, it's about not just making something because it's it's going to be the most commercial option and everyone... It's going, actually, damn it. Like, I want to make something that I really love because... Not only am I the one then also writing my own press release, I've got to write the sales pitch. I've got to meet people. I've got to do the interviews. I've got to sell the watch by not trying to sell it, by actually caring about it. Well, if I've made something that I don't care about, a color I don't like, it's really difficult to do it without coming across as, you know, a bit of American psycho, you know. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, when it goes back to like, you know, the, the setting up thing, it, th- there was also then a point, and this actually, um, on reflection, I can't believe I did this. So I'd worked out when I wanted to launch. So 2016 was, would have been Fears' 170th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Beautiful round number. My days in PR had taught me that that would be a good year to launch. And it gave me sort of enough time to get everything done. There, there was a, a watch show taking place in November 2016 and I'd, I'd been to it for my own interest I'd been there with Rolex you know, I, you know, I knew about the show and I was like right I'm going to l- launch Fears at that show on the 3rd of November so I'm kind of working back I was like well how many months do I need to be working full time on Fears without a salary like mm-hmm. you know saving money and, and doing all that and I was kind of like basically six will do me okay ish so I left Rolex at the end of February and I told everyone and their dog that I was going to be launching Fears on the 3rd of November. People go, that's really dangerous. You know, what, what happens if it doesn't happen? You just look at them and go, what do you mean it wouldn't happen? <laughs> I'm in my 20s. I'm naive and hopeful. Of course it's going to happen. But it gave me such focus. You know, you, once you tell enough people, it's got to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, and I think one of you guys in a, uh, one of your you first... It was in the very first it. episode. If you say it, something's more likely to happen. I'm sure you Oh, yeah, say yeah, it. there was me, yeah. I've heard yeah. that, genuinely. Because you almost you put the pressure on yourself. Put it on yourself. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you say you're going to do this. Okay, yeah, you don't go around fronting. No. You know, I, I, I like to pride myself that I believe that everything I say I will do will actually happen. You know, we talked, I spoke to Tom, who runs Gownsmith, who are in the store with us today. He and I sat down and were talking about this store back in December last year. Gives you an idea how long these things take to plan. But, you know, we said, we're doing this. When are we doing it? Which month do we want to do it? Right, we're going to do this. 
and he he's like me like if he if he actually says he's going to do something it's going to happen there's no like you know and which is why I, I love the notes section on my phone you know your best ideas or you say it's someone go right i better write that down because i've now actually got to do it but it is true you know i said right i'm going to relaunch this company on the 3rd of november and work heaven or hell to get it launched and we got it launched and the red cliff was up and ready at that point exactly so the red cliff is the watch i launched with uh the red cliff date and as the name suggests it's a watch with free hands and a date <laughs> and you know i spent that year 2016 going and researching you know meeting with suppliers across europe and switzerland germany and finding the right people who were going to make the watch to my designs now the reason it's called the Redcliffe Date is because Fears was founded by Edwin Fear on Redcliffe Street in mm-hmm. Bristol. So if you look at a lot of watches who have a long history, they'll often have the date they were founded on the dial or somewhere on the watch. I did not want to do that. It just is it's shoving it down people's throats. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you know, maybe it's a very British thing, but it's like, you know, if you've got it, you don't have to flaunt it. Yeah. So I said, right, I'm not doing that, but I do want everything to have not everything but most things to have a link to the heritage so you look at the Redcliffe date you look at the logo of fears today and the logo on the dial that's taken from 1946 you know the name of the watch is named after Redcliffe Street the shape of the hands are taken from the 40s and the 50s you know it's about little references because it's my imaginary world that if fears had kept going this is the watch it would be making today interesting yeah, and I that's think that's cool. an important thing. I'm not doing a... I, I don't want to be a law ash. I don't want to just do reproduction. I don't yeah, want it to yeah. look like, you know, shabby chic. I want it to be... If you want the original shabby, go on eBay and buy it. Be my guest. That's fine. That's great. That's where you buy vintage watches. What I'm selling is a new watch which has heritage, has links. You know, all the packaging that Fears makes today for all the different watch families are dark blue boxes with a cream inside. Well, in the 40s and 50s, Fears watch boxes were dark blue with a cream inside. Now, the boxes looked completely different. They were tiny. You know, back in the day, a watch box was like a thimble. Yeah. Nowadays, it's a, you know, a nice, big, beautiful <laughs> yeah. thing. And my packaging's made in the UK. It's all made out of beautiful English ash wood, stained to my own colour. Fears <laughs> ultra dark blue. <laughs> it's incredible. Which is like the blue on my business card isn't Pantone. It's my own ink. It's my own spot ink. Which I felt very, very, you know, I was like, oh, the printers are so wonderful. They're developing this own colour for me. And then afterwards you go, oh, wait, this now means I'm locked in. I have to go to yeah, them. Yeah. But all of my suppliers are also family-run businesses. Was that, was that a deliberate choice? Not necessarily, but or I think it's... how it happened. Right. was the connection you felt. And obviously their values probably align with your own right. business. This is it exactly. You know, you go to a big conglomerate... And they'll be like, oh, that's lovely. You're, you know, family-run business, you know, oldest, old heritage. That's great. That's wonderful. The marketing or salesperson you're talking to does not really give a damn. Yeah. You know, you go to a smaller business, often it'll be, you know, you'll start talking and very quickly. They'll be like, oh, well, let's bring in, you know, the managing director or the owner because he's the, you know, the grandson of the founder or, you know, it's his name above the door. And then you're suddenly having a one-on-one and they get why you care about things and why you want to do things in a certain way. And also why you're going, you want a minimum order of 500? I say 50. We'll do 50. But they, you know, they're more willing to take a chance on you yeah, because they're going, actually, I get it. I understand mm. it. Um, 
but yeah you know for me it's always going back to the watches it's about linking things back to that but also having modern references so for example the model number on the Redcliffe watch always starts BS1 BS1 is the Bristol postcode for Redcliffe Street today back in the day it didn't have a postcode because postcodes were only invented properly after the First World War The Brunswick, which is named after Brunswick Square in Bristol, which is where they set up the export business. Its reference number is BS2, which is the postcode today, which fits very nicely because the Brunswick came second, so it's the same. Yeah. Nicely done. That's just yeah. very, very lucky, you know. Yeah. Someone is looking down on me, you know. Yeah, Edwin Fear, Amos Fear, <laughs> So yeah, it's working. It works well, certain things like that. I want to ask one more question before okay. we go in. I wanted to ask about how you found out all the info you now know about fears of old. Because you mentioned right. that you struggled to find half a page's worth. And even just looking at the website, like even the evolution of the logo, I noticed was on there, like all that kind of stuff. How did you, how did you find all that about? Because you're obviously so knowledgeable about all of this stuff now and all these little tiny bits of attention to detail. So, I mean, if, if you think of it, that, you know, when... I first found out about Fears over that Sunday lunch. You know, within a few days, what I knew about the company was probably, say it was about like half a centimetre uh-huh. of knowledge. Um, if you then consider that by the time I launched Fears, we were up to maybe, you know, I was going to say a few inches, but we're talking in modern money, we're looking at about 15 centimetres. Yeah. Within the first year, it has grown to several metres. Mm-hmm. Today, we're probably touching 10 metres. Like even today... We got a voicemail from a gentleman saying, oh, you know, I've got this old Fears watch. It's my dad's. You know, I would like to get it serviced. So we're calling back saying, look, we can talk into you. You know, it's not something we do that often. But, you know, if someone's got a vintage Fears watch, we'll look into servicing it. Yeah. Especially when he then says, oh, yes, he was given it in 1963 when he retired from working at Fears. Wow. And you're like, mind blown. Like, what the hell? This is... This guy is going to provide, you know, we're setting up another call to discuss this. Suddenly going, he's got living knowledge about this, you know. This is, what paperwork exists, what memento, what what stories, you know, the gossip, what are we going to learn from that? And suddenly you're like, right, well, you know, we've just, we're about to add another meter on to what we know. That's, That's absolutely mental. So it's really interesting how the word, as the word spreads you suddenly realise that there are lots of people who maybe have inherited a watch or come across a watch and they've started Googling, going like, oh, I wonder what this is. A few years ago, there would have been nothing. They would have found like... Whereas now, they find the company and then get in contact. Um, In terms of watches, eBay. eBay was fantastic. So that was my next question, was how much was your mind blown when you first had a... So the the very first Fierce watch I had and went into the archive... um, I couldn't stand it. I hated it. Really? I was so disheartened. <laughs> I was excited because it had fears on the yeah, dial, yeah. right? But you didn't but like the watch. No, and this comes from working at Rolex. You get used to, like, proportions of things and balance. And, and this watch just... I don't know. It just... I didn't like it. It didn't, didn't make me excited. I remember the seventh watch. That was the watch where I go, right, now I'm excited. Actually, now we have something that I can work with. We've got a silhouette. That's the watch I take the hand shape from, which has uh-huh. now become my signature hands. Also, that the logo came from. That was very exciting. That watch cost me £5. 
No way. Where did you buy that on eBay? Yeah, but I bought that before the company restarted. So they now... Yeah. Oh, damn it, I was going to say, I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm sure someone would have got there before me. <laughs> it is fascinating. So recently there was a bidding war on eBay for a watch. And um, I, had been, I had been bidding for the archive. And I'd set myself a limit of several hundred pounds. And I was like, over that, I've got one that's sort of similar already. So I don't need to own it. It would be nice to have, but I don't need to own it. Anyway, when it finally went... The next day, I got an email from someone saying, I've just acquired this Fears watch. I was like, ha, 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 I was bidding on this as well. And then someone else messaged me and said, oh, I missed out on a Fears watch last night. I'm like, my God, how many people were bidding on this one watch? And it turned out in the end, there were about six people were bidding on this one watch, um, which is why they now go for, for quite a bit more, which is fascinating, but it's annoying when you're trying to build up your archive. It's crazy. Mm. It's mad. I've got so many questions, but I feel like we should... Uh have a quick break, a break before I go. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, so, welcome back after our short break. And obviously, Nick, we, uh, we do play a game with all of our guests these days uh, where we try and break up the monotony of our voices. Um, <laughs> of our voices. Yeah. Um, and we try and make it a bit more fun and have a bit of a segment that we cater to each, each guest. So this week it'll be you versus Tom, um, and the game is uh, needed a name but couldn't find the time. <laughs> anyway, moving on from that terrible uh, that terrible name. Well, so I'm going to give you two things, and you have to tell me which takes longer. Okay. So, w- would you like me to keep score? Yes, please. Um, can I borrow a pen? Uh, certainly. If you don't have one, I have. I have one. There you go. Borrow my gold one. Oh, this is getting smelly. This was a gift from my uh, colleagues at Rolex when I left. Oh, Christ. (laughs) So, cross pens were founded in 1846, same year as Fears. No way. Yeah. So was Peroni. Oh. And the US Treasury. Really? Great year. I thought that was like way before then. Yeah. No. No. I suppose you think about it. It was a bloody long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Queen Victoria had only been on the throne nine years. She was still in her 20s. She was a millennial. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about So which takes longer? So question number one. The journey from Earth to Mars or a year? Tom. You want me to go first? Yeah, what takes longer? Uh, Earth to Mars. I'm going. Nick. Your answer? I'm going to go a year. It's a year is longer. The journey from Earth to Mars takes between 260 and 300 days. Wow. But at what speed? Yeah. At yeah. The Hang on, Ross. Okay. 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 I thought it was okay. walking pace. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, every three years, there is a certain point where, the, the, where Mars is only 55 million miles away. And that takes 260 days. Wow. Someone's spoken to Elon about this. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah, sure. I was going to say. I'm like, sure there'll be an update. It makes him seem very. Uh, his goals seem very achievable. Mm. Anyway, maybe we get him on the pod next week. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, number two. The life of a housefly, mm. or the suggested minimum time spent driving Route 66. <laughs> Nick, your turn first. Which is longer? Which is longer? Uh, Route 66 one. Tom. Oh, because it just seems like it could be a trick question. 
Or is he double bluffing? Yeah, see, oh, that's it. See, that's it. You just don't know. I'm going to go Route 66 as well. Life of a Housefly is 28 days. This is Google, so it may not be correct. But really? suggested minimum 28 time, days? Supposedly. My goodness. I thought that was long. So the minimum spended time spent uh, time spent on Route 66 is only 14 days. So neither of you get a point there. Oh, I'm so angry. Oh, well. Um, we live. I'm used to disappointment. <laughs> I'm absolutely placid. <laughs> Question number three. So this is the kind of level of our games. No, no, uh, I'm enjoying they this. Very, they are very stupid. Um, I mean, I'm so far doing one better. So yeah. you know. Um, mm. How long does it take for oil-based paint to dry? Versus how long does it take for Dolly Parton to make a living? Got to figure that one out. <laughs> it's definitely oil-based paint. Oil-based um, paint takes way longer. Well, I'm going to go for oil-based paint then. Well, Google did say six to eight hours. But obviously, Dolly Parton takes nine to five, which is eight hours. It's eight hours. So it is Dolly Parton, unfortunately. Really? Do you need to that's a that letdown. No, that's fine. Sure. Because we can just cut No, no that's fine. No, oh, that's a nightmare. Yeah. Oh, well, this, well, is, this is one of our uh, least successful games so far. Yeah, I've got none right. Yeah. Number four. To learn English, assuming 10 hours a day, or the premise for Danny Ball's 2002 horror film. This is getting very complicated, and now I'm saying it out loud without the answers. This is complicated. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How proficient in English are we talking? Oh, like that makes a difference. (laughs) Seriously, Tom, I think you're stalling, mate. I think you're stalling. (laughs) Do you want me to, do you understand what the film is? No, I don't even know. I have no idea what the film is. 28 Days Later. Oh, okay. See, that was kind of the, the premise. Well, look, I'm 31 and I'm still trying my best with English. So I'm going to go with learning English. It's got to be learning English. It's learning English. Yeah. It's 48 days. Number five, the, qu- the final question. This is not the most successful game, I, I will admit. <laughs> no, no, but I think for us, no. But for the question master, it's the most successful game. True, because these are actually Because they give questions. questions. Okay, question number five. The Olympic torch relay in 2012, or how long Forrest Gump ran for? What is longer? Hey, that's a really good one. I know. Right. I think it's the relay. I'm going with the relay. You think that's longer? What would you well, say look, longer? Next two one up. So I'm going to have to go with Forrest Gump. So the Olympic torch relay took 70 days. Yeah. Forest Forest running for a long, long time. Three years, two, <laughs> 14 days, and 16 hours. Still not I, seen it. Really, not seen it. <coughs> he ran for a long time because he, he has the big beard and the, yeah. the shaggy hair. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, means we tie break. There is a tie break. Oh, thank God! <laughs> How many minutes are there in a year? Tom, you go first. Oh, oh come on. Okay, uh, hang on. Let me just. You can't have all day. I've got no idea. Have a guess. Four hundred thousand. Nick. 400,000? I'm sorry, I don't want to be disrespectful, but like... I don't know. I'm not good at these ones. How many are in a day? 60. No, wait, minutes. So you want minutes in... Minutes in a year. Please please keep that in. Please keep that in that you just said there were 60 minutes in a day. Yeah, we will. That's going to be the clip that we use. No, I'm editing this. (laughs) (laughs) I did this last time when I said there was like 20 million students in the UK. (laughs) Yeah, because a third of the population I, are students. Yeah, I it's all between 18 and 22. I genuinely have no idea. Well, you said 400,000. 400, okay, so I think there's about 32 million seconds in a year. You have got that. 
so unbelievably close. Yeah. It's like you're 40 or 40,000. Do you want to know why? Because oh, basically back... That in, was going to be it. And I thought, no, nah, that's too silly. <laughs> no, no. Because it was back in the day at Rolex, people would come in, they'd talk about their watch and the accuracy. And you'd be like, well, it's going to lose so many seconds a month. So you say like, if a watch loses, say, I don't know, four seconds, two or four seconds a day, that's only a few minutes a month, which is so many in a year. But all people would say, oh, I need my watch serviced. Oh, what do you mean it needs a service every three to five years? You know, complete strip down and rebuild. And I'd say, well, look, your car drives for an hour a day and yet you service it every year. Whereas your watch is ticking for so many millions of seconds a year and yet it only needs a service every three to five years, which makes it proportionally better value for money. People would still complain. Um, well, okay, so there's 60 seconds in a minute. So... We're dividing 32 million by 60. If we divided it by 10, that would be like 3.2 divided by something else. I'm married to a mathematician, so this is going to be embarrassing. I don't know. I'm going to say it's a few million. It's 525,600. Damn it, I was going. No, no, win. So you, um, you won. <gasps> even, no, though, no. even though Nick knew pretty much <laughs> to the, the uh, exact second. So there are 31 million... 556,926 seconds. Wow. Oh, I just did an Excel roundup. Yeah. Although, <laughs> although, that's not a level. Like, that, that's not a divisible by naught, which it should be. So I don't know how that's happened. But yeah, anyway, unfortunately, Nick, uh, Tom wins this week. I mean, we, I, in the past, we've given bonus points for, to be fair, for good if, facts. If, if the seconds but, um, in a year don't count for a bonus point. I just think it would make it, uh, you know. Oh, you, you just want the win then? Yeah, yeah, basically. I don't think I've won a game for a long time. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. I feel on. really good for you. Yeah. Thanks, I feel Nick. really good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on from that unbelievably successful game, we want to talk quickly about the future of Fears and for you. Okay. What is the plan for the next couple of years? Do you see bringing more watches out? Do you, do you also see coming up to London more often? I have to say, we've already started talking about next year's pop-up. Nice. We, well, put it this way. We started talking about next year's pop-up in the first week. We were just like, this is exciting. This is cool. This is actually people are coming in. In the last week, it's then gone one step further again. Well, obviously, we'll do another London pop-up. But what about doing something bigger and more exciting? So at the moment, we're toying with like, what if we went down to like the French Riviera and did like a month in the Riviera? I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's sunny and it's a bit cold outside at the moment. Mm -hmm. But we're suddenly like, well, let's do this. And right, this is the thing. Talk about it and it will happen. Yeah. We discussed this on Thursday. This is Tom and I. We discussed this on Thursday or Friday evening. The next morning I walked in and I said to Tom, you know what, I've been thinking about what we said last night in the bar. He said, I've been doing one better. I've started researching where it could be. <laughs> I was like, damn it, we're actually doing this, aren't we? But it's that thing of going like, yeah, next year needs to be, uh, this needs to happen again. This has been amazing and, and, and is great. But it's also about doing the next thing. And I've never done anything international. So I'm really keen to do something international yeah. next year. Maybe trunk show in New York, wow. something in California. I don't know exactly, but... I'm now at a point where it feels right to do that. There'll be a few new watches, nothing revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Like, I, interestingly, last year I launched, a year after being running, I launched a new dial color, the Redcliffe Continental, the Redcliffe Brunswick, and I had customers who were coming to me and saying, look, I love what you've 
you're launching you know i already own a watch or i'm going to buy a second but i don't want this amount of launches each year and i thought that was really interesting yeah it's yeah. like actually you know what it almost killed me I, I can't do that amount of launches it's too expensive but also you know if i sit down and i'm designing too many watches at one time I'm, i don't want to have to design a watch because i need something to design exactly if it doesn't feel right you don't do it yeah yeah um so there will be some new watches next year, but nothing, you know, not too much. Mm-hmm. It's more a case of just, you know, trying to grow in that stable way. You know, the, this will never happen, but the dream for me would be that I'm not having to worry each month, like, are there going to be any sales? Is anyone going to become an owner? It'd be nice to actually be like, okay, I know that there is always a sort of steady amount because then I feel confident enough to take on someone as an employee full time. Uh-huh. So Johnny, who you met, he's working for me for a few months and it's a fixed period thing, which is fantastic because I'm now at a point where I need someone to help me. You know, I, there, there are too many things, yeah. especially because six months ago, Fears was a very domestic business. Now it's international. Mm-hmm. You know, while we've been talking, emails have started coming in from America. You know, tomorrow morning I'll wake, in, wake up from the emails from China, from Singapore, it's now a business which is running almost 24 hours a day and I need someone to help with that. But I'm not going to be the person who asks someone to give up their well-paying, secure job to come and work for me no. until I know that at least I've got a bit of backup in the bank to pay their salary. Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing me going like, well, this month I'm you know, just going to be on beans and toast again. <laughs> it's another thing when someone's actually got a rent or a mortgage to pay exactly. and it's based on what you are yeah. offering them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know yeah so that's part of the future plans Um, kind of longer term than that you know in 2021 Fears will celebrate 175 year anniversary of it being founded obviously it's not run for all that time but that you know and that's a very significant date and I'm really keen that actually that date you know something big happens Mm -hmm. and I you know I do want Fears to grow to a point where if you were say I don't know, in Sao Paulo, and someone says to some guy like, oh, you know, name a British watch company. I want them to say Fears. Not that everyone wears it, but everyone's heard of it. A bit like Morgan. Morgan Cars. Everyone's heard of it. When was the last time you saw one? No, I haven't seen one for ages. No, not for a long time. But you'd still recognise one if you saw it. Exactly. Right. It's that thing of going, actually, it's small, it's niche, but everyone knows it, and it's very well loved. I love that. Shall we, uh, do you want to ask the... I don't know, I, I, uh, I open it, you go for it. Okay, alright Nick, well, uh, we asked our guests, we ask our guests one question every week, and the same question, and it's very simple, what advice would you give to a fellow millennial looking to embark upon their, their, their life goals, their, their journey, starting a business, whatever that may be, what advice would you give to them? One, wow. one piece of advice. One piece of advice. Yeah. As long as it can be longer than a sentence. It can be <laughs> as long as you want it to be. Okay, I would say... Yeah, don't just jump into something. Mm-hmm. Find out what you're passionate in, but also realise what you can be the hedgehog at. And what I mean, have you guys read Jim Collins? I haven't. Okay, he's amazing. Anyone who's listening should go to their library and get a book, any of the books Jim Collins has written. But in there, there's a concept called the hedgehog concept, which is basically saying that don't worry about being like, you know, the, this, that or the other. Work out what you are good at and can be better at than anyone else. Mm -hmm. So for example, 
I would never be able to be a watch company that can shift the biggest number of units or be the most profitable or do. But what can I do? I know what fears is about because it's a reflection of me. It's about being elegant, understated, classy. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's what I'm going to do better than anyone else. The idea of the hedgehog concept is you've got a hedgehog and a fox. A fox is wily. It can kill you in a hundred different ways. Whereas the hedgehog can do one thing other than walk slowly. It can turn into a spiky ball, which is why the fox never gets it. However many attempts (laughs) it does. Work out what your hedgehog thing is. Mm -hmm. What, What makes you the hedgehog? What are you better at than other people? Now, whether that is, you know, skydiving, whether that is you're better at branding or marketing or whatever, like everyone is good at something. It's just working out what that thing is. And once you know that, that's when you take the plunge, not before. It's so true. That's a fantastic answer. It's perfect advice. Um, well, other than that, that's right. I think that's it. Um, thanks so much, Nick. This has been, well, it's just been super interesting to, to hear from you and learn about the company. Well, thank and, you. And thank you. It's been good fun. Definitely pop back for well, it's three weeks, close. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we're open till third November. Third of November. So um, yeah, have a good. We'll have some more beers. Have a good play with all the different watches. Mm. Thank you for the beer. Thank you for the pen. If you <laughs> Don't need, steal it, yeah. <laughs> if you need any of your international fears events covered via audio, then we we'll advertise ourselves for that one. <laughs> yeah. um, we come out and travel <laughs> yeah. and uh, be there. Um, but other than that. Uh, What's we got to do, Ross? Subscribe to the podcast. Uh, follow our social media. Anything else? I think that's Send it. Send us an email. We haven't had any emails yeah. for a while. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I've been Tom West. And for as long as I can remember, I've been Ross Jeffries. Thank you very much. The bows are sharp.